welcome back to the second episode of Ivy Unfiltered. I am Vidal, as always, with my big brother, Barry. So good to be back here. I absolutely loved the first episode. It was probably the first time either of us expressed so much, so many opinions publicly that got actually recorded. Excited to double down on it today. We're going to be reflecting on five of the latest interviews at Ivy. So we'll kick off with discussing Master of Change, how to excel when everything is changing based on the key learnings from Brad Stahlberg. Then we're going to go to Burn the Boats, how to toss plan B overboard to unleash your potential with Matt Higgins. From there, unleashing your potential, transformative lessons from a five-time world record holder, Annabelle Williams. And we're going to round this out with two final reflections, one on All Pride, No Ego, a queer executive's journey to living and leading authentically. And we'll finish up with the hook point, how to stand out in a three-second world with the key learnings from Brendan Kane. So lots to cover here. And at Ivy, we now do a brand new interview and share the key learnings every single workday, so five a week. For anyone who wants to go deeper on anything that we discussed today, All of it is available to you on ivy.com. And if you ever want to exchange these learnings with your teams, your loved ones, you want to bring it into conferences and offsites uh, you organize, we're happy to help you with anything. So just email either one of us and we'll be happy to support you with that. So getting started, Master of Change, Brad Stahlberg. Vidal, what was your key resonation when you listened to this interview? Well, I mean, first of all, as you just listed all the titles, Barry, I thought, was this one week? There's certainly a dense amount of value. And I think we could have probably spent a whole week and a whole episode today talking about Brad um, and Master of Change. The overall thesis is about embracing change. I think, first of all, one one thing that stuck out to me was a term that he used that he introduced. First, he introduced the concept of homeostasis, which I remember from back in high school biology, it's the concept that our bodies live in homeostasis. We want the planet to live in homeostasis. This is when the systems, many complex systems, despite living in, in relative chaos, they all come together and work together and balance each other out in an equilibrium. And we want to look, I think we all feel like we want an internal homeostasis. We want our work and our life and our motivation to be in this homeostatic state. And what Brad introduces is this idea of allostasis. I didn't know what that mean, uh, what that meant. But the idea is basically, instead of looking for that balance and equilibrium, it's about accepting and even seeking change because it's through change that we develop. So I thought that was really interesting because there is clearly, I definitely have a bias towards finding that balance, towards finding a homeostasis because I think, oh my God, I need to find balance. Like I'm all over the place. But in fact, accepting this concept of allostasis is really interesting. One other point that I'll just bring up, there were so many good learnings from Brad, so it's it's really hard to summarize in one point. But one statement that really resonated with me is this concept, and this isn't Brad's thought, he just brought it up to introduce one of his frameworks, and it's this idea that our happiness and mood at any given moment is defined by the gap between our expectations and reality. And the importance is to really set our expectations accordingly. So it's not about finding the homeostasis. It's not even necessarily about accepting change. It's about intelligently creating expectation. And then we will find fulfillment. Um, 
because we can reduce the gap between our expectations and reality while still setting a really high bar for ourselves. So building on that, when I hear people say things like, you know, well, manage your expectations and, you know, want less and you'll be happier. While on the one hand, it makes sense to me, it also often rubs me the wrong way because I think to myself, well, if that's how the highest achieving people in the world, uh, you know, if they just set a lower bar for themselves, then this world would be a much worse place than it is right now. So it's been a lifelong struggle for me to figure out how to kind of marry the advice of like, you know, uh, be happy with what you have instead of seeking happiness elsewhere with the critical importance of striving for more. So one thing that Brad said that helped me reconcile this internal conflict that I have, he said, when it comes to the things you can control that are down to you, set your expectations sky high. Uh, Everything that you have agency over, that you are the prime mover, then yeah, go as, set the highest expectations that you possibly can. At the same time, when it comes to your expectations of external results, you have to almost cultivate a mindset of being somewhat indifferent in the sense of like, as long as you're giving your very, very best and the inputs you control, then sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but your happiness can't be just tied to the outcome because the outcome also involves, you know, 8 billion people uh, in the world and everything else, all the other forces at play. So I thought that was a, a really good one. The other thing that I'm observing a lot with all the, 10,000 plus CEOs we work with, the 300,000 plus business leaders across the world. Uh, So many people expected that after the madness of COVID and that crazy amount of change, things would somehow come back to normal. And that's what Brad refers to as homeostasis is there is order, then there's disorder, and then you get back to order. And allostasis, as you were alluding to, is a Instead of going from order, disorder to order, it's more about order, disorder, and then reorder. Mm. And even though it's been now a couple of years since the worst of the lockdowns, a lot of people are just trying to get back to order. And what Brad is saying is like, stop it. <laughs> stop trying to get back to what you had, to the order you used to have. Really look to optimize the reorder, the new reality and how you want to define it. And for many business owners, you know, we have those incredible high times where we're like top of the world, all the numbers are going in our direction. And then anyone who's in business for more than a couple of years, then there's low times and bad times. And we wish to get back to, oh, remember when we were just crushing it Mm -hmm. all the time and we didn't have these challenges. And what Brad made me really think about is that stop trying to get back to the highs. Those highs will never come back the way you had them back then. It was a different company you were running and it was a different world you were running it in. Look instead to create reorder. What's a new kind of high that you could have never had in the past that you can have now in this new environment? Final thought from Brad that I thought was super moving is having this multifaceted personality and identity to help navigate changes. He gave this example of like, imagine you have a house with just one room. And if that room is a mess, then your whole life is a mess. But if you have a house with multiple rooms if you have and you know as an analog to your identity Mm. if your identity is about one thing like your work and if your work is a mess then your life is a mess not great but if like a multi-room house 
if one or two rooms are a complete mess, but five or six other rooms are actually quite tidy and pleasant, then your ability to kind of navigate through life is going to be stronger. So how can we make sure that our life doesn't have just one dimension? And for a lot of people in our audience, that's likely going to be work. But even if it's work and family, what else can be there? And what I did during COVID, even though I was working harder than ever, I decided, you know what, this is a good reminder that my health is actually really important and I'm just going to sign up to a triathlon. And I had never mm. run a race before. And if you looked at me <laughs> when I signed up for this triathlon, you would think, hey, maybe you should, you know, maybe start with like a 5K run. Uh, but I like the idea that like, whoa, if I do this, I'll be a triathlete. And that's not who I am right now. And it was intense enough and exciting enough. And it created a whole new room in my house of life. Uh, and, uh, and it gave me so much happiness and joy. And even for my work and my personal relationships, there was another aspect to me that was interesting to other people that was interesting for me also to talk about. So that multidimensionality I found was an incredibly powerful force. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, first of all, congrats on being a triathlete, one-time triathlete. Um, and I do recall as you were training for the triathlon, one of your close friends who shall remain nameless actually told me, hey, I'm, I'm properly concerned that Barry might die during this triathlon. Um, you, you certainly proved him wrong. I think he knows who he is when he's listening to this, but well done on that. I also wanted to reflect on this concept of uh, order, disorder, and reorder. What it makes me think of, we're both w watching Foundation now. Um, we, I'm, I'm a big fan of the books as well. Um, and Isaac Asimov wrote this incredible story uh, called The Last Question. And the last question was, how can entropy be reversed? And it was asked to a superhuman AI. Maybe we can get into the last question on another episode. But what it made me think of is the concept of entropy. And the reality is from the most micro to the most macro. So micro being ourselves or even smaller atoms and cells within ourselves. It's in a constant state of flux and entropy. Those systems are always getting more and more chaotic. And, it, and within ourselves, there's constant entropy. And that entropy, how, do, how, how does it manifest? You know, a lot of things stay, potentially, it seems like they stay the same throughout the course of our lives, but actually, it's not really staying the same. It is a concept of order, disorder, reorder, and that's growth. Um, and, and in some of the other modules that we're going to talk about and the thought leaders' ideas we're going to talk about, this is going to come back again and again, what that process of growth is. But entropy is constant as we get bigger within businesses, within countries, within the whole world and society, we're constantly going through the cycle of entropy where things are becoming more chaotic, but that, that is progress as well. Progress only happens through the process of entropy because total homeostasis is stagnation. So in reality, we want to optimize for this. We want to seek this, but we want to also, as Brad said, keep our expectations in check about the things that we can and can't control um, and try to focus on the things that we can control and, you know, aim as sky high as we, as we can possibly allow ourselves to and really work hard at it. And then the rest, we got to expect some chaos, right? And ride the waves and expect change. And that's the whole theme. Change is going to happen whether you like it or not. So surrender to it and do what you can and work hard uh, within that concept of change. Uh, so, yeah, really love this one. I think it's a really great jumping off point for this week for, for the rest of the thought leaders we have to talk about. One last thing I want to add to this before we move to 
our reflections on the next module is someone might hear what you just said, Vidal, and be like, okay, that's cool, Vidal Berry, super optimistic guys, but you know, there's been change in my life that absolutely sucked. It was terrible and it led to a decline. There was no growth. It sucked. And, um, you know, I think it's a little bullshit to just think, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, all change is good. This is, uh, you know, these guys are just like, you know, drinking too much of the Kuwait. And I want us to also be realistic and recognize that not all change leads to positive growth. And there is decline, there is entropy, and there is also, you know, uh, negative destruction, whether it's at a personal level, organizational level, or societal level. So it is really important for us to think through that too, that it is actually high stakes. How we, We're not going to be able to eliminate change. That's just not how the universe works from the Big Bang till the whatever big expansion yeah. or big collapse, however the universe ends. There's constant change. Uh, we're all made of like these vibrating, uh, you know, subatomic particles. And they're constantly changing their configuration and so on and so forth. So if change is inevitable and it's possible that it can lead to growth, but it can also lead to decline and diminishment, how do we actually navigate? doesn't matter maybe how we feel and so forth. What's the best approach? And the last thing that I want to round out this particular reflection with is Brad's concept of rugged flexibility. So ruggedness and flexibility, <laughs> like they can seem like kind of uh, opposites. And what Brad recommends is be really rugged and strong and firm when it comes to your core values, when it comes to your the things you most deeply believe in, what you really want to become, the impact you want to have on the world and your loved ones and and so forth, and the kind of life you want to live, how you want to feel while living that life, do not give that up. Be super rugged. At the same time, be super flexible and nimble when it comes to how you're going to get there because the world is changing, you're changing, the people around you are changing. So if you're too firm and rugged in how you get there, you're not going to get there. But if you're very flexible in how you're willing to get there, but not ever abandoning uh, the ruggedness you have on your core beliefs, you're much more likely to get there. So, And I do think that's yeah. a great jumping off point for our next module uh, of the week, which is by Matt Higgins. And he wrote this incredible book called Burn the Boats, How to Toss Plan B Overboard to Unleash Your Full Potential. What were your most critical takeaways from this one, Vidal? And we'll build on it from there. Yeah. First off, just to come back to your first, your last point on Brad about, you know, rugged flexibility. It reminded me of your conversation with Matthew McConaughey that's really stuck with me for years about life is like a multi-lane highway. And as long as you know, you know where you're going, doesn't matter. You can weave in and out of those lanes as long as you're going in the general right direction and the same direction or the direction you want to go. Um, so that true north is really important. Um, it was That is also a super good segue to Matt Higgins. So Matt is really interesting, Barry. Um, this concept I found very triggering. Um, folks, what we have here is a CEO, the CEO of Ivy and the COO of Ivy. CEOs and COOs are very similar, but they're also very different in many ways. So first off, let me tell you what this concept of burn the boats is. The concept of burn the boats refers back to ancient warfare when a naval power would invade a neighboring island or city-state or whatever, think ancient Greece, 
the concept would be you'd get all your army onto the you know opposing island that you want to invade and conquer and then you would burn your navy so that the army had no choice if they want to survive they better win the war and okay what has this got to do with our lives what has this got to do with ceos and coos it, this applies to everybody i think it's just nice in this conversation what triggered me about this is matt's idea is really counterintuitive and the idea of burn the boats in our lives is about embracing plan a and not having a plan b plan a is the only option and when plan a is the only option how are you going to behave because matt really worries that when we optimize too much for a plan b or we have too strong of a plan b we're actually working to the detriment of plan a because we know plan a doesn't need to succeed now coos plan b plan c plan d e f that's your job. It feels like your life. Okay, you got to be ready for any possible outcome. And what I love about CEOs and what I've learned so much from the CEOs that I've worked with is they work in a zone of plan A. They actually have a very much a burn the boats mentality of like, we're going to put it all on the line for this. And perhaps that's where success really, you know, really, really does come from, from this concept of metaphorically burning the boats and not having a plan B option. It's all about the plan A. Obviously, Matt you know, acknowledges the fact that there will be backup plans. Plan A may not succeed, but the idea is not having B, uh, plan B be so prominent um, that it becomes a viable alternative option. It really needs to be a real downside scenario and an, and an option that's undesirable, but, you know, ultimately leads to survival and whatever else you need to do. But plan A is the plan. That's the plan. You go for plan A. And this is interesting when we talk about rugged flexibility the concept of embracing change. Um, I think overall the messages dovetail with each other um, because the concept of plan A, plan B is an alternate plan, but plan A can also have that rugged flexibility that Brad was talking about. Um, so curious to hear what you thought, Barry. For me, I think this is uh, one of the best advantages I've had in my whole life. And is this ability to deeply believe in something and go for it and have the staying power and the willpower when, you know, there might have been like a thousand plus reasons to quit at some point, the endeavor, I, I kept going. However, that doesn't mean that I did it perfectly the whole time. Uh, for me, it boils down. Now I realize I used to think plan A was you know, the endeavor that I'm pursuing. So in this case, Ivy, which I founded uh, with my classmate, Philip, after business school. And uh, which, you know, I graduated in 2010. So that was 13 years ago, was when the beginnings of the endeavor started. And a part of me thought this is going to succeed no matter what happens. And I've never never ever thought otherwise and people often ask me i think i must have been asked definitely hundreds if not thousands of times like okay but what if it doesn't work out like what's your and for me it was just unthinkable it's like what do you mean like i'm gonna keep going no matter what happens and of course like any early stage venture that lasts more than <laughs> the initial couple of years mm. uh, we had some incredible highs we grew the organization in our uh, prior model. We were doing a thousand events a year across eight cities. And for four years in a row, we had doubled in revenue each year. 
and you know everybody it, it was seemed to be thriving from everyone's everyone's perspective but inevitably uh with that model we did hit uh <laughs> business people have really great euphemisms we got ahead of our skis or we had we hit a bump <laughs> on the road uh you know these are great ways to like tone down and it was a scary moment one thing that we used to do to grow our community no longer worked and that just put the whole model in in jeopardy and while dealing with the, and it took a couple of years to turn that around so it wasn't like oh yeah and then mm. we figured something out and it was fine it was really hard it felt you know really precarious for a couple of years for sure and during that time i was very lucky to have my uh ypo young presence organization forum where with a group of uh, seven guys we meet once a month for four hours kind of serves as a personal board of directors and what they got me to see was that I was, they got me to see that I'm seeing Ivy, the organization, as this big, really important thing that I need to keep together. And I'm this like small person trying to carry this big weight and make it work at all costs. And what they got me to see is that that's wrong. Barry, you're the big thing. Mm. You're the big thing. Ivy is one of your creations. And there's no way, like what's important is you take care of yourself and you focus on your dreams. And then one way or another, if you really want to achieve Ivy's mission, doesn't matter, you'll find a way to achieve its mission as long as like Barry keeps going. That's what's critical. And in a interesting way, all of a sudden, like that plan A definition of like, it's the org that's most critical. It was actually transcending that. And it's like, no, it's the mission of the org, which is, and it's the mission of the founder. And my, uh, as, as someone who cares so deeply about like, how can we really maximize the ability of each person to dream bigger and achieve their uh, full potential through learning, through connection, that's what's important. And as long as I'm like completely dedicated to that plan A, organizations change, business models change, every technology changes, the world keeps changing. Um, but that's never going to change. The world is never mm. going to not need connection and learning and growth and people trying to achieve their goals. So uh, I think my key resonation connecting this to Matt Higgins and plan A, I think it's really important for each person to take a really thoughtful approach to what plan A is. And I think that's really not just, you know, the business goal or your, you know, <laughs> your KPIs for the year. That's not plan A, you know, that, that you're going to stick with. Plan A is like, what makes you come alive? What is the kind of way in which you want to impact the world? How do you want to leave it different? How do you ideally want to leave it better than mm -hmm. you found it? What's your approach towards doing that? And whatever your job may be, whatever the org may be, whatever may be happening in the world, are you getting better and better at that? Some other thought leader I'd interviewed, whose name will come to me maybe later, had also said, uh, if an author only worries about, you know, plan A is the, you know, write a bestseller, number one bestseller. Well, that's not a great plan A because sometimes things hit and you have a bestseller and sometimes they flop. The only question that should matter if you're an author is, am I becoming a better author? Even if I wrote, if the last one was a flop, did I learn from that, that I became a better author? And obviously an author of what? When an author whose books have the X, Y, and Z impact on the world. So as an entrepreneur, business goes up, business goes down. <laughs> Am I a better mm. entrepreneur 
who is better at achieving the goals of an entrepreneur. So some of those goals are universal, which is, am I getting better at uh, bringing together disparate resources and talents to better deliver? But also as an entrepreneur, why am I being an entrepreneur? What's the, how do I want to leave the world different? Am I getting better at learning how to, how to do that? So for me, it's important to transcend like a superficial planet, even in the burn your boats and Greek warfare, right? Mm. Um, the, the, I think the key thing there is it's superficial to think, oh yeah, we just need to take over this island. That's not necessarily the only planet. The planet, like real planet is, let's make sure not just to win the battle for that island, but win the overall war and yeah. make sure that our society doesn't get fractured in the process. So transcending and landing on a bigger planet, I think is, is truly critical. Yeah, super interesting, just resonating on everything that you shared. And I'm thinking back to those cobblestones in the West Village where you first called me and for anyone listening, you know, when Barry had the idea for what Ivy is today, you know, he called me from these cobblestones in the West Village um, and he still lives right nearby it. So he still often calls me from those same cobblestones. But what's very fascinating is Ivy has certainly changed massively over those 13 years, as you said. And if we talk about other organizations, you know, your tactics, they're going to change. Fine. Everyone's comfortable with that. Your strategies, well, they're going to change too over time. They're going to evolve. Um, and that, you know, going back to Brad, that is the concept of order, disorder, reorder. You have to react to that change and your strategies are going to adjust accordingly. Even the words within your mission statement might change, but the underlying values that led to the desire to build something, to create something, to produce impact. Well, that's the plan A, in other words. And I think you articulated that really well, Barry, and Ivy serves, you and Ivy serve as a really good example of that. Because you are continuing to work towards that plan A. I'm really happy that now, you know, I was on the sidelines, you know, as a kind of spectator slash supporter. Now I'm in the trenches with you and we're both working towards that plan A. And I don't see that plan A ever changing because you hit, you hit the right note. It's like, this is the concept of falling in love with the problem. The plan A solves a problem that all humans, all groups of people, all organizations are always going to have a desire for deeper connection. Um, so as long as we're working on that and, and we're every day getting better at that, regardless of our strategies, regardless of our tactics, regardless of what we actually do, as long as we're working towards that, it's going to be super powerful. And I encourage everybody listening to think about, well, what is your plan A? Like really go one level deeper than you think because the mission statement is unlikely to be plan a because we all know that the words of mission statements will change we've all been at consecutive offsites and one year to the next you know it's like well let's cross that out let's think of something else you're you're at the whiteboard all the time but there's something that's at the core that is that connective tissue and maybe when that plan a doesn't exist well that's potentially where failure can occur uh, because you know that's the glue that holds it all together. So really interesting ideas. Um, I actually want to take the plan A and think about, you know, what is my personal plan A, which I think I'm in the process of discovering now, but it's, yeah, it's hard to put words on it. Um, hopefully through this podcast, maybe by episode, I don't know, 20, I'll be able to clearly articulate my plan A. Um, but I think I'm getting there. Uh, yeah. Uh, did you want to add something? Yeah. Tell me. 
Yeah, I want to also say, you know, so it's 13 plus years, right? But it was actually only last summer where I was on this, which I alluded to also in our last episode with three really good friends. We were at a wellness retreat. And that's when it came to me, for example, that uh, we were studying these four different archetypes of a visionary um, uh, uh, healer, a warrior, and a teacher. And we were each assigned, we're, there was four of us, we were each assigned an archetype and I was assigned the archetype of teacher. And I was like, oh, come on, I'm more than a teacher. <laughs> but actually through the course of the wellness retreat, it became so apparent to me like, wow, teacher, that is exactly what I wanted to do, but not any teacher, right? A teacher who like Robin Williams and the Dead Poets Society, a teacher that gets people to dream bigger, take action and fall in love with life. And, you know, the beauty of, uh, of what it means to endeavor towards things. So I, d- I don't want the audience to get the wrong ideas. Like, oh, Barry, good for you. You always knew what you wanted to do. So maybe it's easier for you to <laughs> yeah. stick with things. It's not the case. I mean, it's, I'm still discovering what plan A fully is. What I do think just to underline what we all said, what probably is unchanging is the, problem that I really want to solve in the world, whether that's in a conversation I have one-on-one with someone or whether that's, you know, my impact on, you know, people that I don't even know, whatever it may be, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And I encourage everybody to double down and think about that. And of course, want to give a shout out to recent Ivy guest, uh, Uri Levine, uh, who wrote a whole book on fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Uh, You can check that out in our library, but he clarified that I think better than anyone uh, that I've interviewed. So with that said, we're going to segue now to our third module of this episode where we reflect on Annabelle Williams, world-renowned Paralympic gold medalist, five-time world record holder, stunt double for Charlize Theron. And uh, she wrote, uh, well, her, her kind of focus area is all about unleashing her potential and transformative lessons from her life journey. So, what I'd love to do is, read if you can share, of all the incredible wisdom Annabelle shared, what really stood out most for you, and we'll yeah. go full speed from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, first off, I loved hearing Annabelle's voice again. We got to hang out with Annabelle um, in Monaco in June at the EY World Entrepreneur of the Year uh, ceremony, um, where she was interviewing Toto and Susie Wolf. Um, so it was great to have her and to have you speak to her. Barry, you know, I'm obsessed with high performance athletes and, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people listening who love sports documentaries because elite athletes are kind of like the epitome of performance because they get tested constantly. And Annabelle talks about this anecdote of the fact that she was at the Beijing, Beijing Paralympics. She was a world record record holder. Um, I think it was the 50 meter freestyle. There was all this expectation on her. And first of all, she said... Coming to that point, while I had won multiple gold medals, while I was this world record holder, I'd actually been in thousands of races where I lost. Because in elite sports, there's one winner and then there are, you know, many losers. Not a nice word, right? But like in sports, there really is winners and losers or winners and not winners. Let's put it that way. It's a better term. Um, and in that particular race, she... Uh, she was, she was the favorite. She's the world record holder. She comes to the finish and she sees she's 0.03 seconds, um, down 
and she hasn't won. In fact, she came fourth, which she says is the worst position. I always thought third is the, or sorry, I thought second is the worst position, silver, because you're close to gold, but you're not quite there. Fourth must be terrible because you're not even on the podium. Uh, and maybe, yeah, bronze is all right. But anyway, I think everyone wants to go for that gold. What we learned from Annabelle from this is that, you know, like, and I, this relates to what Brad shared, what Matt shared. It's, it's about, she said that, she said, failing spectacularly is required for growth. And I thought that, well, that's so fascinating because, okay, we've, it's kind of, maybe it's potentially, it's a bit cliche, right? Like we all grow, we, we kind of know this idea of like, you grow through challenge, you grow through suffering, you grow through struggle, but the, that, those two words together, failing spectacularly and publicly, she said too, well, that sounds like a worse nightmare. That's nightmare fuel for, especially for a lot of people who are high performers or want to be high performers. Um, but what's so interesting for elite athletes is losing is as much part of the sport as winning is. And last week we talked about deliberate practice and we were talking about our thought leader, uh, Eduardo Brincero, um, who made a point that, you know, at sports is about winning and losing and business is about making an impact. What I find interesting, though, from sports is you're tested constantly and you have to go through the feeling of losing or failure all the time. And actually, so you get you get more stimulus. There's more of a feedback loop of the bad feeling of not winning, which pushes you even even more strongly towards winning. And in business, while business is about making an impact, you know, we have KPIs, we have a lot of different metrics to potentially measure that impact. But the true impact, the plan A impact, is always going to be a little bit more intangible. There is always a score sheet, maybe, and that's your balance sheet or your PL. Uh, but whatever score sheet you go by, it's never exactly like a win or loss. There's never a race. Um, you have bad weeks, you have good weeks, you have good years, you have bad years, but you never have like, a, okay, I came first. Even amongst your competitors, you know, the journey keeps continuing. But what's interesting is I think for me, sometimes it's not to perform pressure on myself, but I think pressure is good in many situations. It gets the best out of us. And athletes definitely deal with in, in immense pressure. And Annabelle says that too. But I think it's really interesting in myself to create, and I think I do this subconsciously, so maybe it's about being a bit more deliberate about this, to create race situations or race days. Um, and we can probably all reflect on times where this has been the case, where we've had that huge meeting or this pitch or presentation that's like, oh my God, this is my Monaco Grand Prix. This is my World Cup final. And if it goes well, it's like, yes. But then it's like, okay, I got the business. Now I have to deliver for this business. Like it just, it doesn't end. It's not quite the same. So it never feels like I got the gold medal and like it's over. Um, because there's this constant cycle of increasing attainment and, or, and you know, the plan A, that's interesting for Matt, like, Plan A is never achieved, I think, is the point, right? Plan A is always, you strive for plan A at all times. Anyway, I love this. I, Annabelle had so much wisdom to share. This is what stuck out to me because I'm obsessed with high-performance athletes, and she is one. She's an impressive individual, you know, outside of her athletic career. Um, but this is what really st stuck out to me. And you know what? The concept of failing spectacularly and publicly yeah, that's the stuff of nightmares, but maybe that's what's required um, sometimes. Not, not to deliberately fail, obviously, but put yourself in a position. If you put yourself in a position to fail, uh, to fail spectacularly, 
that means you've put yourself in a position to succeed even more spectacularly. But, you know, as an old skiing coach told me, you know, if you don't fall three times a day when you're skiing, you're just not training hard enough. You know, if you're not falling, you're not on the edge. Um, so do you want to be safe or do you want to live on the edge? Because that's what wins races in, in sport and maybe in business as well. Uh, would love to hear what resonated with you. You're probably not going to nerd out quite as much as me on the elite athlete uh, perspective, but maybe you will. Let's see. Thanks, Vida. I definitely have been cultivating a greater and greater appreciation for elite athletic performance. You've always been more into sports and uh, and this topic than me, but you really have planted the seed in my head of looking at everything also from the perspective of an elite performance. And the reality is failing spectacularly, great phrase, but if we fail spectacularly and then we flame out and we just can't compete again, or we're in deep depression or, you know, we, you know, it, it, it causes massive harm to ourselves and others, and we can't get back up from it. That's not great. So even if it was a spectacular <laughs> failure, we need to be able to keep going. And we already touched on this a little bit earlier, specifically what Annabelle said about this when she was in the changing room after getting that uh, non-ideal outcome after coming forth. She was sitting there in the changing room, pretty upset to say the least. Uh, another competitor came in and asked her, hey, Annabelle, is your family here with you? And uh, Annabelle was like, yeah, they're, they're in the stands. and." Uh, the lady said, do you, do you know how lucky you are that your family can be here with you? And uh, the person who was talking to her, from what I recall, no longer had loved ones around her anymore. She had lost some loved ones. So um, what that reminded me of was the fact that this other competitor reminded Annabelle, hey, there's more than one room in your house. Mm. One of the rooms in your house you just, is a mess right now. You didn't achieve what you wanted to, but your family's here and you have other things going on in your life as well. And if Annabelle's entire life was all about defined by whether or not she gets gold, that would have been potentially the end of the road for her. Yet I would claim, despite her world record breaking performances and gold medals, I would say her career after mm. being an athlete has been as spectacular, if not more so. She's on TV. She inspires companies across the world. She is. She interviewed Toto Wolf and Susie Wolf in Monaco, as you were mentioning. Like, and she's. It feels like she's just getting started. So that multidimensionality, I think, is is critical, and it's it's a, a fantastic example of how important it is that while trying to get gold in one area, we don't, you know. Uh, neglect all the other things in our life because all those other things is what we have to give us the rest recovery and you know the recharge needed to bounce back out and give a shot at the next gold medal mm -hmm. attempt uh, whatever that may be another thing that annabelle talked about which is important is what this person did this competitor who came into the changing room and got her to see uh, what she has in her family and what a thing that is to be celebrated, even a moment of in a moment of loss. It was a kindness that this person did for Annabelle. And 
one of the things that Annabelle is now renowned for is really helping organizations tap into that importance of kindness and kindness, you know, at a superficial level, you might think, oh, kind and nice. Hey, there, there, pat on the back. Everything's going to be okay. But actually true kindness, true kindness is telling someone what they need to hear, no matter how uncomfortable it is. True kindness is being there for somebody when it's incredibly awkward to be there for them. And that's what true kindness is. And uh, can you imagine walking into a changing room with an athlete that has been working for years to do something and they just failed at it and there's no one else there and you go in there and you ask them about their family? It's super scary, but takes a tremendous kindness. And she helped me see that kindness and courage are so interrelated mm. and to be kind to others and to be kind to ourselves. Actually, um, it's not a weakness. It's actually an unbelievable uh, courage requiring strength. It's really difficult to do. And I thought, wow, I got to be more kind <laughs> to myself, to those around me. But that doesn't just mean be nice. It actually means transcend niceness and to be truly kind is to really be there for somebody and, you know, say the things that are hard to say, be there when it's hard to be there. Yeah. Um, I love that, Barry. And I think it's a really, really good segue um, to Jim Fielding. Um, so maybe you introduce Jim because I have a few thoughts to share about what you just said and I'll bring Jim into the, into the conversation. Sounds good. So Jim Fielding, he's a mensch. He is an incredible <laughs> human being. Uh, he's had... A, uh, extraordinary leadership roles across many of the most beloved media and retail brands in the whole world. Disney, Gap, 20th Century Fox. And uh, he wrote this book called All Pride, No Ego. And uh, he is an extraordinary person. So excited to hear about what jumped out at you most on this one. And then we'll round out with the final interview yeah. for this podcast from there. Yeah, well, so he used a phrase that I'd never heard before, but um, I suppose it is a framework that exists, but I love this phrase. So first, I'll just share a little anecdote. Uh, three weeks ago now, I was in Rome with my partner, Gabby, at our dear friend's wedding, um, and they asked us to give the, the friend speech at the ceremony. And Gabby introduced me to a concept called chosen families, which is what Jim also mentioned, this concept of chosen families and how important chosen family is. What's a chosen family? It's that non-family family that you surround yourself with, that are with you through thick and thin, that have the courage to tell you, or to, the, the courage and the kindness to tell you what you need to hear, which is sometimes not the thing necessarily that you want to hear, but it's the thing that you need to hear. So I love that he brought up this concept of chosen family and he really emphasized the importance of chosen family in your life journey um, in terms of having those folks that when you are not feeling at your best, that you're not feeling at your greatest, you have those individuals in your life who can really be there for you, but who can have the courage and kindness to really tell you what you need to hear. Um, and the thing that really resonated from Jim, there's a lot there, but I, I was just thinking of myself. It resonated with a lot of the things that I've been thinking about and working on within my own self. Um, and it's a phrase that I hear from many of my extended chosen families, I'd say, 
from the, my actual family to chosen close friends to, you know, further out to various kind of like friend groups and circles that I have. Something that I keep hearing in re- on repeat is you have to be kinder to yourself. You have to be kinder to yourself. Um, and I, I want to say like, okay, I know. <laughs> Thanks. I know. <laughs> but, and then I always have this but, but I have this potential. I have to reach my potential. I have to work hard. I'm not, you know, I'm just like, I'm not there. I'm underperforming, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I get into this cycle of being cruel to myself or not particularly kind to myself. And then I vacillate. I think like, well, if I'm too kind to myself, am I going to reach that homeostasis? Am I accepting plan B? Right. Am I just accepting failure like Annabelle would have? Like, what if that what if that competitor didn't come in and remind her that, you know, you have a family here and, and you have to like move on from this failure? Um, so, you know, Jim just had one phrase. He, he was bullied a lot. Um, as a child um and he had this one phrase where he said his negative self-talk within his mind but also out loud his negative self-talk was much more damaging to him than any external bullying um that he ever that he ever uh, experienced and you know i think it's it's so interesting we, we talked last week about how you know we put on you know we put on our best clothes our best voice and we show up as best as we can for those clients who we barely know, but sometimes for our friends and our family, you know, we take them more for granted or we're easier to, you know, work up a temper to show emotion, to show anger. But like for those external people who, you know, realistically aren't as important in your life, you know, you're on your best behavior. Um, So I I found this interesting because I think like, you know, I, I had said last week, like we're sometimes cruelest to ourselves and this concept from Jim of being, kind to ourselves, accepting ourselves, um, but really being kind of at the same time, you know, like the metaphorical, even within ourselves, that metaphorical competitor in the locker room that reminds us that, you know, there's other rooms in the house. You're still on your path to plan A. Like plan A is not over. It's just a change of strategy. I think it's really important. And it um, it really touched me. And I thought, well, Jim is just like, Clearly just, you called, he's a man. She's just also just like a very kind and good and energizing soul. Um, so I really appreciated, uh, I really appreciated all the learnings from Jim. And I, I, I encourage everybody to consider who are their chosen families. And I also encourage everyone just to call to action to try to hear themselves when they get into that space of negative self-talk, because even the most optimistic person, they might be optimistic with, and I'm certainly guilty of this. I'm way more optimistic about everyone else's life than I am about my own. Um, I'm, I'm very harsh with myself. And then I'm like crazy encouraging of everyone else, no matter how they feel. And I get a lot of pleasure out of that. And then weirdly, like what's wrong with me? Sadistically, I have a punish and I punish myself. I'm cruel to myself. Um, so it's an interesting balance. Encourage everyone to just think of that concept um, and and come back to the title of Jim's book: "All Pride, No Ego." Be proud of yourself and temper that ego because the negative self-talk comes from the ego, and sometimes the ego can be quite cruel to us. When I was listening to Jim's journey and on that ego point, I found a, a trajectory that deeply resonated 
because I feel like I'm also, I've been having that evolution, that relationship with my ego and how it's been changing. And as I observe other people, I can almost see zero to 10 where they may be on their journey. I'm certainly not a 10 out of 10 when it comes to sublimating my ego to truly focus on what matters, bringing the best out of other people and the problem I'm trying to solve rather than how I'm being made to feel about something. So sometimes the ego gets a bad rep. So before, you know, you know, just preaching or coming across like I'm preaching that ego is bad. Ego is not bad. Ego is there to protect us, to keep us alive, to get us to survive. Ego is only bad when it's trying to keep us alive and keep a, help us survive when our survival is not at stake. And actually, we're completely overreacting and it's causing damage to everything that we care about. So one thing that uh, had come up in another offline conversation with a friend of a friend, he was talking about, you know, people have always had this desire to join hands and be all as one and sing Kumbaya and like embrace each other and do good things. But then while some people were wanting that, other people were like, hey, everybody wake up. Our village is getting invaded by hoarders. We're going to get like pillaged. We need to get up. <laughs> so that's been kind of like this battle between the consciousness and the expansive, like welcoming nature of humanity with the protective defensive nature. And both are necessary. You don't want your village pillaged, but you also want to trade with other villages and thrive and have a successful exchange. So yeah. same thing is happening uh, inside of our brains. Earlier in my career, when internally in a team meeting, I would propose an idea and someone would essentially, whether through their body language or in their words, say a bunch of things where they disagreed. What I would hear is, Barry, you suck. Your ideas suck. Everything is going to fail. That's not what they were saying. But that's how my body would just get, I would just get like completely worked up, furious, I would say stuff and it would just descend into this negativity. And anyone who knows me, I'm quite positive <laughs> as a person, uh, that, to say the least. Um, I've seen that the years of highs and lows and the crucible pan of entrepreneurship have been like kind of, you know, not maybe quite gold yet, but certainly closer to gold than the lead that the raw material I started with. I've been really, you know, cultivating that ability without a choice. It just happens, I guess, if you live long enough and go through enough hardship where like people can say stuff that would have triggered you in the past, but now you're kind of like, okay, what are we really trying to do here? Let's get beyond this. Now, obviously I still get triggered and react negatively when I shouldn't. It happens much more with people closer to me than people mm. who are more distant to me. Uh, but uh, Jim also mentioned like all pride, no ego It's kind of like, get over yourself, get over, you know, your feelings around things, really anchor yourself on what matters. And, you know, this whole arc of this episode has continuously gone back to yeah. this, you know, uh, common theme of what's plan a here. What's the problem to be solved? What's the mission and what the next action you're going to take, the next thing you're going to say, how does it get you to stick to plan a? Rather than, you know, protecting your fragile little ego that's getting all, you know, hurt for no reason when, you know, you're bigger than this. Uh, so it's not easy. He also talks a lot about, as you mentioned, too, kindness, being kind to yourself uh, when that's happening. It's also OK if you get triggered and 
you don't behave in the best way, just get back on track. If you get off track, just get back on track rather than like, you know, uh, torturing yourself mm. and keep on moving. And creating also environments for that kind of high empathy is very critical as well. So with that, We've got one final module that we covered this week. And this one is with Brandon Kane. And it's, it's based on his book that's called Hook Point and How to Stand Out in a Three-Second World. He is a renowned digital marketing and attention expert, best-selling author. He's an interactive media strategist. And this book has done really very well. And I know that for many of us, we may think, Grabbing people's attention in three seconds, that's for silly influencers out there. I'm like a person of substance and like I have real value to offer. Like I'm not even playing that game. Um, that would describe me and Vidal quite well, <laughs> having, that, <laughs> having that attitude. How long is this but... podcast right now? <laughs> How was the first 10 seconds of this episode? Yeah. Uh, so we, we like to think this way, but the truth is we don't get to choose the world that we live in. We don't get to choose how the neuroscience of our minds work, right? The reality is something either catches our attention or it doesn't. And if it doesn't catch our attention, we are never, ever, ever, ever going to engage with it. And we make those decisions in a split second, sometimes less than three seconds. So whether we like it or not, all of us need to get better at capturing attention. So whether that's with uh, those that we're trying to, you know, prospects whose attention we're trying to get, whether that's with existing uh, folks that we serve, whether that's with our teams or with our families, if we're not getting their attention, then, you know, not, like then we're, we're unable to make an impact on them. So it's really critical. And without want to hear from you of all the things that Brendan shared, what you thought was most important. And I'll build on what you share and we'll wrap from there. Yeah, there's so much there's so much to say on this and I think Brendan shares harsh truths for those folks who, you know, want to be or claim to be or think that they're, you know, above that and they're not as susceptible to those small triggers or those like um attention grabbing things. The reality is like I don't know, personally, my journey is I uh I've recently gotten off Instagram. So maybe like once a week I'll open it and then I'll be like, oh my God, I got to close this because I, I find myself getting drawn in. But we all have, look, we all have our vices and I don't want to call them vices because we get some stimulus that we need. So my vice, it's Reddit, it's YouTube. I get in there because they feed my interests. It's not so much like I don't, I don't subscribe to necessarily that like, oh, it's so damaging echo chamber, et cetera. It's like, this is where I learn and I love learning. So these platforms that give me information about the things I want to nerd out over, it's amazing. But like often on Reddit, there's like, it's basically a meme. No one reads the articles. People only read the comments, which I always find very fascinating because, um, well, actually I'll relate this to one of an important point that Brendan makes. An important point that Brendan makes, grabbing your audience's attention, well, that's only step one. Step two is keeping their attention. Right. And so while you might grab their attention in the first three seconds or the first 10 seconds, doesn't mean that your content is valuable. Doesn't mean that you've achieved whatever goal you have you had. You you also want to grab and retain that attention. Right. So like Reddit is a great example. Why do people read the comments? 
because it's, I mean, this is the same way of reading Twitter threads or replies and so on. It's a conversation and we're always seeking the conversation because we don't know where it's going to go. Conversations are less predictable. And Brendan does say, if you tell your audience at the very outset, the ending of the story, they're going to be like, cool, I can close this now because like, I know I already know what's happening. Right. So he, he was like, that's, that's maybe good for grabbing attention, but it's not best for keeping attention. You have to, you have to use the hero's journey, build up some, some suspense, like the kind of plot arcs that we're used to um, from Hollywood movies or TV shows and so on. Um, but I do find it interesting, this interactive town hall. And I think we're seeing so much movement now. And I want to reflect on some of this movement. If you look at ads, it's like the advertising agency arguably has always been the same. Maybe the concepts of hook point have always been there attention grabbing and attention keeping. But if you look at old ads and we were, I I was in Atlanta last year, we went to the Coca-Cola museum and you see all these like old school Coca-Cola ads and they're like long, basically essays, you know, about the health benefits of Coca-Cola. It looks like an economist article, right? But it's in an ad and there's like a cool picture and there's the happy people. Maybe that's like what grabs your attention, but the text keeps your attention. Now we're in this world of screens quick stimuli, short form text, short form video. Um, And that certainly grabs attention over like many interactions. So we swipe and swipe and swipe and swipe forever, but no piece, individual piece of content is very long therefore. So it has to like regurgitate its point so rapidly. What I'm encouraged to see is potentially a movement. I mean, I think if, if we look at ChatGPT and if we look at what we have done at Ivy, For anyone that's not on our platform, check out our app or log into our platform. We've recently rebuilt it to make it a lot more text-based than necessarily video and audio-based, which it was before. Um, And I thought like that was maybe just a preference that we had, but but I think there's an overall movement towards text and chat GPT and LLM models, natural language models are the ultimate example of interaction over text. Many people now want to you know, obviously communicate over text rather than phone calls and so on. So the world is moving back to a text-based direction and maybe ads are going to be more text-based. But I think overall, I'm going to bring it back actually to our our plan A. And I love that plan A is like permeated throughout this whole episode, that concept. But if we bring it back to our plan A and we think about what's like the real hook, like for me now I'm going a little beyond Brendan, I think the real hook that really hooks people is a sense of connectivity. Um, And that's what social media gives us. It's like connectivity, which also has the unpredictable nature of natural interactions with other human beings. Um, And that that is the unexpected. Um, The reality is if you read an Axios article, okay, your eyes can scan and see the like punchline right away. Great, okay, now you know the punchline, but like, did you really interact with that piece of content? Were you moved by that piece of content? I don't know. I guess you learned. I guess the point was there. But when you read this epic long New Yorker article that takes you, you know, an hour and a half to read, well, you're going on a journey, right? Like you're like those authors are so good at taking you on this journey, but they're not hooking. I I don't know if there's like the hook is the journey. And I think the hook being the journey is really interesting. And they're always human stories. And I think this concept of connectivity, whether we're like asynchronous with those people or just reading that story is so important. Um, and we both nerded out this morning. Uh, we're both fans of Lex Friedman. Lex did the first ever metaverse interview uh, with Mark Zuckerberg with this 
new technology that Meta's releasing, which is absolutely mind blowing. I mean, okay, you have to wear a big, heavy VR headset. We, we can imagine that in the future it won't be so big and heavy, but they're not in the same place, and yet they look photorealistic as if they're in the same room. And I just got so pumped for this because I think that is maybe gonna. This technology is gonna take us out of, out of the three second world and back into the real world. And I don't want to sound like an like a lot like a you know anti technology or whatever. Like it's it's for me it's more about we've lost a lot of human interaction and connectivity um, over the changes. So the reordering doesn't feel so human to human anymore. Um, but even if we're in separate rooms, I mean, we're talking to each other now across an ocean and it feels like we're having a chat to brothers. Um, so I'm really excited for it to feel like you're sitting at the table that I'm sitting at now, no matter where we are. And that's going to be just transformative for teams. Um, and I've gone a little bit beyond now what Brandon was talking about, but this is what it sparked in me because I was just, I was less focused on marketing strategies and tactics for hooking audiences. I'm more about like, well, what does this say? about the world, about society, about how we behave. Um, so interested to hear what you thought, Barry. Um, and, you know, yeah, I, I maybe I didn't do Brendan justice. So I will say to everybody, if you're struggling with your marketing, if you're struggling with the ROI of your marketing, you really want to listen to Brendan um, because he has extremely actionable um, advice and it's, it's probably going to change the way that you message. Um, so that is important. Uh, but yeah, my mind just went straight to the big, to the bigger picture. Um, and maybe I lost everyone's attention. <laughs> this. You're good. That was good. That, that was great. I'm not sure. <laughs> that was great. Reed. So building on that, two quick, very actionable things I want to share. One is when we think about capturing people's attention and getting them to do something, hopefully something positive that's good for them. Well, we need to be solving for what is it that we want to help them do? What is a problem they have that we want to help them solve? Because every piece of content, every product, every service, ideally helps someone get from A to B. Some of them maybe not, <laughs> maybe it's not mm. a positive, uh, maybe it's not good for them, but I would say a lot of it is, you know, it, like for a lot of things we just want, things to be better. And uh, that, that brings me to Maslow's hierarchy, back to Maslow's hierarchy. So according to Maslow, as we all learned in elementary or high school or college, or at some point, we all want to survive. So food and shelter, if we don't have those things and our health, like obviously, you know, if we don't have those things, we just want those things. You know, that is, it's really critical. But then once we have those things, connection, community, belonging becomes incredibly important. Um, and then at the top of Maslow's hierarchy is what he called self-actualization. Some call it transcendence. Sounds really, you know, out there, but it's becoming like all that we can be or transcending our base needs to become something more. And even if we have food and shelter and some kind of community, we always want better. We want to be healthier. We want to be safer. We want to have better connections and we want to be better at, you know, achieving our plan A and transcending and self-actualizing. So combining those needs with what Brendan shared around 
how people engage with content and how they make decisions, what captures their attention, what gets them to take action. Brandon's company did this research uh, on how people make decisions. So I'm going to share the specific stats he shared. So mm. according to him, 30% of people, uh, a the largest subset of the population, uh, make their decisions on how to engage with content based on their feelings. So depending on how this content is making me feel, that's I'm going to decide whether to check it out, go deeper with it, engage more with it. So it's all about the emotions and the feelings for almost one out of three people. For 25% of people, it's all about fact-based decision-making. Are the facts speaking to me? And based on the, like factually, what this content is about, that's if I, I'm, I'm going to decide whether to engage with it or not. And that's a quarter of like one out of four people. But when you combine feelings and facts, you get to 55% of the population. So half the people out there in the world, if you can appeal to their feelings, if you can appeal to their search for facts, you'll cover quite a bit. But that's not all. 20% of people, when they engage with content, it's all about fun-based. 10% of people, it's about reflection-based. Does it help me understand and reflect on the world and then you know, get like help me zoom out? And for 10% of people, it's values-based. Can I believe this brand? Can I trust them? Are they committed to me? And the reality is no one is just one or the other. And what Brandon really recommends is there's, on the one hand, this is not what Brandon said, there's the whole thing of a phrase I learned recently, the riches are in the niches. <laughs> okay, I've never heard this, but now I can't unhear it. So if you want to like make a big impact, if you want to get rich, focus on a niche. Like be very, very focused. The issue is though on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and like whatever um, mass media, you want to like if you don't, if people, if you can't even capture someone's attention, they're not going to even hear from you, even if you search by demographic, uh, you know, advertise by demographics, you still, the, the platforms don't let you advertise based on the someone like fun or facts and so forth. This is just human wiring and how they engage with content. So I think it's really critical that when we're creating content to capture people's attention, that it has a nice balance of how much does this appeal to emotions? How much does this uh, contain facts, get people to reflect, appeals to their values? is a little fun, like who doesn't like some fun, and trying our best to, to, to have that combined approach. But while we're trying to do all that, let's not forget Maslow's hierarchy. People have actual needs. And like, <laughs> if you're just being entertaining, they could engage with your content. You can have a billion views. They may still not engage more deeply with you. Like, loved your ads, never buying that razor blade or whatever it was, right? Like, um, uh, but then... Your chances of some people buying it is a lot higher if a ton more people engage with it. So even if you capture 1% of 1% of those people, it could be really good uh, for your business. So I guess my key takeaway is, and business, and by the way, also not just what outside of business to whatever it is that you really draw people's attention to, how can we really appeal to people's core needs? And how can we do it in a way that is more artistic and combines different colors from the palette of human receptivity rather than just being like here are the facts this is what's going to make you or hey it's all emotions i'm going to make you laugh and cry but then there are no facts and therefore maybe you won't mm -hmm. engage any further so having that mix i think is going to be critical and that is my final thought on that 
uh, final module. I want to conclude today's uh, episode by asking you, Vidal, what's one thing maybe you didn't get to say or reflecting on the whole conversation? What's your final call to action to the audience? And after you share yours, I'll quickly share mine and we'll wrap for today. I, I think we said it many times, but my call to action is, is the thing that we said many times. Think about your plan A. What is that plan A? Because it's probably not the first thing that comes to mind. And it's probably an exercise that you need to think about. We had a call to action last time about writing down the 100 things. This is similar. Think about your plan A. Maybe go talk to friends, family, your chosen family, your colleagues, whoever it may be, um, and ask them, well, what's your plan A? What's our plan A? There's so many plan A's from the very micro um, to the very uh, macro. Um, Define that plan A, then embrace entropy and don't feel, don't ever be too rigid. Be rugged and flexible, as Brad said. Um, and, you know, try to not burn the boats. I don't know, maybe just like put them far away so it's not tempting um, to get on them. But I love the, this episode was so great. And this week in Ivy Modules was so great because there's these very common threads. Um, and, uh, and obviously those common threads are because... Uh, because we're talking about humans and humans, um, yeah, humans share all, all the same incentives and struggles and, um, and yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've got to, we're always working up our way up that pyramid towards self-actualization. Um, I'm still working on it. I'll let you guys know um, if I'm ever at the top of that pyramid. But probably I'll be too transcended by that point to think about things like podcasts or anyone else. I'll just be like, oh. Um, in Valhalla. <laughs> or maybe at that point, all you'll care about is um, how you're impacting other people. It could go either way. Um, yeah. And love your love those reflections, Vidal. My call to action, very simply, and I can say this with 100% conviction, whatever is your plan A to get from one point to another, whatever the outline of that looks for you, I know for a fact that you're going to get better from A to B to go from where you are to where you want to go. The more you learn about the world and about yourself, the deeper you connect with those around you and new people that come across your life. And the more you can take those learnings, take those connections and translate them into behavior change in yourself, in your organization and all those that you impact, the better you're going to do. Learning, connection, behavior change. I do believe those are the three ingredients for unleashing your full potential. I believe all the five interviews that we did, uh, we, that we just reflected on this week, um, really uh, help us to learn and hopefully uh, lead to some behavior change. Now, for that to happen, we need to obviously double down on the learning, double down on the connections and the behavior change. So, if any of what we said, of all the things that we shared, if there was one or two things that really hooked your attention, that you felt like, you know what, this is something I want to go deeper on, that's exactly why the Ivy app exists. You can just go check it out. All Each of the five people we referred to, we hosted a full 60-minute conversation with them. We then took that conversation and split it into specific insights. Each insight is two to three minutes to dive deeper on. But we... Between Vidal and I, we probably scratched 5% of the insights from each of the different interviews. So definitely encourage you to go deeper to learn more. But learning is just one step 
From there, you have to deeply connect. Or from my experience, you have to deeply connect with others around that learning. So discussing those learnings with your loved ones, with your teams, and then committing to some kind of a change. Uh, so take the learnings, discuss it with other people, reflect on it together, and then whoever you're discussing with, make one small commitment. What are you going to change based on this learning? And then set a time and date at which you're going to come back and share what was my success and what was my blocker. This is what we do when we partner with teams on Ivy. We help them do this. And you can also do this completely on your own. Whenever you learn something new, share with someone, discuss it, commit to a change, and then make sure you keep each other supported and accountable for making that change. Absolutely love this episode. Vidal, I'm so happy we're doing this. Can't thank you enough and our whole team for making this possible. And with that, I want to wish the audience also uh, a great day, week ahead. I want to thank you also for engaging with this. We're all super busy. So the fact that you carved out time for this, it means a lot to us. And it would mean the most to us if you then share some of these learnings with your loved ones, with your colleagues, so that the chain reaction and the positivity travels onwards from here. Amen. Amen. Very well said, Barry. This was super fun. I'll see you next week literally see you next week in person uh but i'll see you on the pod next week as well thanks for listening everyone and yeah chat soon ciao right ciao everybody thank you till next time